Well, since we're into a new year now, we took last week some time to review our big rocks, what we stand on as a church, what our core values are, and to restate the vision that we've been on for over a year now, that God would make us a generation of Christians, and I need your help now, who would have the courage to, the confidence to, and a heart that's willing to, to see more people come to Christ. And to help us get some traction on all of that, a vision statement, you can print it out, you can say it, you can quote it, you can memorize it. That does nothing unless it begins to get traction in real lives that are thinking this way and saying, therefore, because of that, what would I do? How would I live? How would I think? To get some traction on this, I started a brand new sermon series last week that I'm calling Live Out Loud. That I'm hoping will help give you some confidence to intentionally speak about Jesus, to share the gospel, and to use God's word with confidence. Use the Bible with confidence. But if you're paying attention, and I hope you are, as we went through our big rocks last week, maybe you were left thinking, wait a minute, how can the same church have a big rock of the sovereignty of God, that he's absolutely in control of everything, And a big rock of evangelism that says you must go, you must speak, you must share. People have to hear the gospel. Would not one cancel out the other? And if we really believe in the sovereignty of God over all things, would not that mean that we just kick back then? God is going to save who God is going to save. There's nothing for us to do but just watch it all play out. If that's you thinking that way today then I want to try to help you. Because we believe that the Bible actually teaches it's not either or. Either God is sovereign or we need to evangelize. It's both and. And in fact, I do not believe, this may surprise some of you, I do not believe the big rock of God's sovereignty gets in the way of evangelism. In fact, here's what I would say. If you do not have a solid understanding of the sovereignty of God you won't even have the right kind of passion for evangelism and you will not put your hope in the right place nor will you recognize where the real power is. Here's what will happen if you don't understand the sovereignty of God. How do I know? I lived it. All right, I grew up in the church, folks. I grew up in churches that God was not that big. He was not that sovereign. In fact, we needed to feel sorry for him. Oh, poor God. Someone has to tell him about Jesus. God's up there saying, oh, please, someone, people are going to hell and there's nothing that can happen but because these people won't talk. Oh, you would think that would motivate people like, oh, my goodness, my neighbors are going to hell. It didn't. But you went around feeling guilty all the time. What it will produce, a lack of understanding the sovereignty of God will produce guilt, a feeling of being burdened and you will be the one much more tempted to quickly jump on the bandwagon of every latest, greatest things that humans and churches come up with to try to attract people to the gospel. Bells and whistles and razzle-dazzle to try to get people to come to the church or turn to Christianity or consider the gospel. Let me tell you two of the biggest places that Christians are guilty of putting their trust where they shouldn't. Ministry on steroids and politics. Here's what I mean by ministry on steroids. By ministry on steroids, I simply mean that whole thing. And you see it here in America lots because America has more money than most countries. 
it's that, oh my goodness, we got to have an NFL player who came to Christ give his testimony. And to get him, we got to pay him $5,000. And everything's a big dog and pony show. And we got to find someone in Hollywood that used to be heinous that now loves Jesus. Or no one's going to listen to us. It's got to be big stuff. Lights. And, and every year we got to have Jesus like rise in the Eastern musical now with a gurney. And we got to have smoke rolling back and forth. And we got to have lights going like this. And the worship leader needs to come down out of the ceiling in a sequined outfit and land. And, and everyone says, you got to go to that church. It's amazing. He came out of the ceiling. Yeah, you can get a big crowd with all that. But here's the deal. It's exhausting. It's expensive. And this might surprise you. It does not bear lasting fruit. Don't hear me say there won't be an initial, oh my goodness, look at all the people that came to that. Look at all the people that said they trusted Christ. Because here's the deal. What you get people with is what you'll have to do to keep them. And so it turns into basically bigger and better, bigger and better. And what next? What next? Bigger and better. And what next? So that's ministry on steroids. And if you've been around enough here, I hope you've sensed we try not to do ministry on steroids. Because we have some confidence somewhere else that I'm going to talk to you about. But here's the second mistake Christians make. Putting their hope and trust in politics. If you've lived long enough like I have, then you remember the 70s and the 80s, right? The apex of Christian influence in politics. There were ministries like the moral majority flexing its evangelical muscles because A... Christians believed we are the majority. It's time we recognized that and spoke up. B, if we can just get enough of the right people elected into the right positions in Washington, passing the right kind of legislation, we will turn this country around. In 1976, George Gallup Jr. declared it the year of the evangelical. And Time magazine confirmed that notion that whole year. James Dobson, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell graced the covers of national news magazines. Christians did have influence. But folks, the country continued to deteriorate and morally go further down a dark path. To the point where today, oh yeah, there's still politics. But today, politics mostly is a battleground for Christians. We're not flexing our muscles and pushing people around Mostly Christians spend their time in politics just defending our basic religious freedoms and rights as Americans. The day of power and influence in Washington for Christians is over, my friends, and I don't see it coming back. You say, Brad, doobie, doobie, down, bummer. What, why are you doing this? Here's why I'm doing it, folks. Sometimes you've got to kick the legs out from underneath the wrong thing before people get excited about the right. It does not break my heart that we've lost Washington. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying in, a, in an election year. I vote. If you don't vote, you're bad. <laughs> bad. You're bad. If you're not even registered, you're bad. Get, get registered and vote, doggone it. We live in America. This is not Iraq so far. So don't, don't say, well, they're all bad. I don't see any differences. Shut up. Vote for the best, the one that's the least worst. All right? Until this turns into a rack and we're all with little head coverings and we're being told what to do and there's no voting machine, vote, doggone it. Read up, learn about the candidates, vote. I write letters, I get involved, I vote. But here's, here's what I'm saying. Don't put your hope there. That political solutions are going to be what gets it in this country and revives this country. 
No, no, no. So, here's what I want to do with the time that remains. As Christians, then, who believe that the Bible teaches both the sovereignty of God and our responsibility to actually share the gospel, to serve, to be involved. If you were to hold on to both of those, what would that look like in a real life? In fact, why don't we say this? What would your life, not just someone out there, what would it look like if you, this year, actually believed that God is absolutely sovereign and that he's called us to be involved and to speak and to share the gospel. I want to give you four characteristics of what it would look like in your life. Number one, number one, if you hold on to both big rocks, God is sovereign and he's called us to evangelize and share the message and speak words. Number one, you will be humble and extremely hopeful in the power of Jesus and the gospel. Let me show you both these characteristics in one person. See, when you know that God is sovereign, it humbles you because you recognize ministry on steroids, glossy brochures, smoke machines, twirling lights, and sequined outfits will not change lives long term. But you'll be extremely hopeful in the power of Jesus and the gospel. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible right now, just say out loud, I feel terrible. I am so sorry. Because we're going to use it this whole service. We're going to go to some great passages. And never mind what I say. You, I want you to see with your own eyes some amazing stuff from God's word. Bring a Bible this year. Bring a Bible so that you can go where I'm taking you. Even if you have to use the index to find that book. 2 Corinthians Chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul, and you will see the humility and the hopefulness in the same heart, in the same body, in the same life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Everything is outside of us. His sights are all focused on outside of him, not we have amazing money to spend on ministry. We have amazing equipment. We have a, no. We have such trust through Christ towards God. And then look what he says. He hits it head on. Verse five, not that we're sufficient to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We get to be inadequate, weak, insufficient. I don't think I can do this. In fact, I'm scared. Servants of a great big God. And here's the deal. It's not us pressing on people from the outside trying to get them to change. It's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit. God's spirit is on the move in our day. He is on the move. And listen to me. Don't feel sorry for God. If you opt out and you decide to spend your life just padding your life, adding a den on the back of the home, going on vacations, eating out and piling up more stuff, God will find someone else to work through. Our God is going to accomplish his purposes and his heart breaks for lost people. And he's going to get the message to people, if not through you, through someone else. And you just miss out. Don't feel sorry for God when you think about evangelism. Say, oh my goodness, I want to I get in on this. And if you're saying, but I feel overwhelmed. Perfect, check that box off. I feel inadequate. That's good too. I don't think I know enough to answer everyone's question. Great. In fact, I think there's probably someone else that could do this better. Perfect. I want to throw up even better. 
Now, go. The person who's saying, bring it. In fact, that person's not lost enough. Give me an atheist who has written books and knows why they believe what they believe. That's what I'm looking for. No. If you think, oh my goodness, I'm scared. Oh my goodness, I don't think I can do this. Perfect. It's a ministry of the Spirit. Skip to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry... What ministry? The ministry of God using us with his word and his spirit to reach other people. Since we have this ministry as we received mercy, we don't lose heart. Look at me. When it's all about you and your resources and your giftedness and your ministry on steroids techniques, you start to lose heart. Because you're like, why isn't this working? What, What do I not understand? Did I not say my little illustration just right? Was I not? When you realize it's not us, it's gotta be God, you don't lose heart. You just say, I'm just his little, weak, Empty, obedient servant. God's going to have to work, but I'll just do my part and leave it up to God. We don't lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. We're going to keep being the church that doesn't just pick and choose parts of the Bible. And as our culture goes further away, the parts that would offend them that are not politically correct will stop talking about it. Not going to happen. We're not going to handle the word of God deceitfully and repackage or redefine issues. We're going to keep teaching all of God's words. Not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And then look, he's going to tell us what we're up against. Here's what's going on, folks. It's not that you didn't have enough smokes or light, smoke or lights or couldn't raise someone from the dead. Look what is going on. Even if our gospel, verse 3, is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has what? Blinded. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. He's talking about creation. Who has shown in our hearts. The same God that had to speak light into darkness is the God that had to speak spiritual life into your dark heart. So it's not all up to you. Just be faithful. God has to do that work and give light in their heart. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice something. Verses 3, 4, and 5 are packed full of not ministry on steroids. Not clever evangelistic tricks. But who? Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the center of all this. Jesus has to be our message. Jesus has the power. It's a person, not a list of tricks and techniques. That's at the heart of the gospel. And when you understand we're not sufficient, we're inadequate, we're weak, we're scared, and Jesus is it, then you can begin to say what he says in verse 7 next. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure. What treasure? Jesus And the gospel, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in this body. Jesus lives in me. The hope of the gospel lives in me. The truth of the gospel lives in me. And I'm weak. I'm still sinning. I'm still two steps forward, three steps back. I I got all kinds of problems still. 
And here's what happens when that's the case. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of, say it, God and not of us. When you understand and hold to the sovereignty of God and our responsibility to share the gospel that he uses us and he's called us to speak, oh, you're very humble, but you're very hopeful in the power of Jesus and the gospel. Let me show you a second characteristic. When you hold to both big rocks in your life, you will be characterized by this. You'll be courageous and bold even in the face of growing alienation. We're going to be alienated more and more. Just go stand over there, all of you. Over there, over there, over there. That's alienation. But also growing opposition. The days are, the days are coming to an end where, where the, our culture is willing to say, you know what, we don't believe that. But go stand over there and sing it to each other and talk to each other about it and we'll leave you alone. No, they're going to come to us and oppose us and say, in fact, this is a hate crime. In fact, you are the problem. In fact, it is Christianity that causes all the wars in this world. In fact, it's starting to happen. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. But here, while you're turning there, listen at the same time. Because I want to offend some of you. I've never done that before in 20 years, but today I'm, I'm risking offending someone by what I'm going to say next. Please don't be that Christian today who is blogging and writing and talking like the sky is falling, like these are the worst of times we've ever seen for Christians. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. In love, I would say, shut up. And here's what I would say. The only way you could ever conclude that these are the worst of times is that you don't read history. And your world is no bigger than your computer game and the blogs that you read that were written last year. If you read history, starting with the history of the Bible, folks, you will see these are not the worst of times by any means. You say, how would I know? Let's start with a little checklist. Any Christian you know been stuck on a stick covered with tar and lit on fire for a neighborhood garden party? No? Okay. Not the worst of times. That's what's happened in the past, folks. That. Stop acting like these. Have times changed? Are we being attacked more? Are we being marginalized more? All our laws being passed that you're like, ooh, I think I just might go to prison or lose my job soon. Yes, 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 yes. But folks... These are not the worst of times for Christians. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Acts 18, verse 1. This is Paul going into Corinth to do ministry. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was one of the same trade, he stayed with him and worked. For by occupation, they were both tent makers. So Aquila and Paul are both tent makers by trade. So he's staying with Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Look what Paul does in Corinth. Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul constrained by the Spirit was constrained by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is Christ. Now look at me. I'm going to reach back to last week's message. 
and remind you of something I said. It's the power of God's word. Stop wishing you had more than words and God's word. Stop wishing, oh, I just wish we could raise someone from the dead. I wish we could do a miracle and signs and wonders and then people would listen to me. Paul's in Corinth. Is he raising anybody from the dead? You doing a sign, wonder, miracle, healing? Nope. What Paul is doing is what God would have us to do today. He reasoned with them, he persuaded them, and he testified that Jesus is the Christ. That's what we need to do today. We got everything we need. You got the Holy Spirit living in you. You got the word of God. Verse six, but when they opposed him and blasphemed. Well, well, well. So that's been going on. Yes, he was opposed. And they blasphemed. They insulted him. He shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. I don't recommend you saying that at work when you try to share the gospel. Not saying everything right here is what you want to exactly do. You walk out of that office and say, I shake my garments now. But he moved on. He moved on. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Verse 7. He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. I love this. The synagogue leaders, they said, we don't want to hear any more about this. Out. Just so happens the guy who lives next door is interested and says, meet here and keep teaching. Now watch what happens. This is so God. So he's meeting in that house. Verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. The guy that's head of the synagogue that said, we don't want to hear it anymore, kept, I guess, attending the teaching times over in the house next door with justice and believed. Does it say he saw a miracle? Saw a wonder, a sign up? He just kept hearing the teaching and Crispus believed on the Lord with all his household, hearing and hearing. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Again, they were hearing God's word. We can do that today. God's called us to do that today. Even though there was opposition, even though top people said, shut it down, we don't want to hear it. God's spirit was working and the leader of the synagogue believed and it says many Corinthians what, what was it that led them to it? Say it. Say it louder. Hearing. Hearing. They had to hear. It wasn't Paul was making tents so well with such a good attitude, not fudging on the price, making a quality product. When someone was ugly to him, he was still nice. And he just lived a sermon. He what? Spoke. And hearing, they believed. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid. You're like, oh, Brad, would you let up? I can't let up because look how the scripture supports what I've been trying to tell you. And God said to Paul, verse 9, do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Here's the deal. There's the sovereignty of God and our responsibility. God is saying, I have all kinds of people in this city that are going to come to Christ. But notice he didn't say, I've already elected people before the foundation of the world and a whole bunch of them in this city, so pack it up and go to a different city. This is already done. It's taken care of. No, because I have people in this city, now you must stay and speak and preach the gospel and talk of Jesus. Do people have to hear the gospel to come to Christ? Do people have to repent and do, does someone have to give them this message? Does the Spirit have to work to give them understanding and desire for it? 
But you don't pack it up and say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, so there's nothing for us to do. No, what there is for us to do is speak, knowing God has people. God has people in southern Indiana. God has people in Cincinnati. God has people in Pendleton County. God has people everywhere, where we work, where we live, where we shop, where we play. And they're not going to come to faith in Christ just because it's going to be when they hear the gospel. Do not be silent. Speak. Speak. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God. Doesn't say a word about healings, wonders, signs, miracles. Now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 8. And let me show you something that might surprise you. Right together. Butted up right next to each other. 1 Corinthians 16, 8. And this is regarding this whole business of being courageous and bold, even in the face of growing opposition. 1 Corinthians 16, 8. Now Paul is in the city of Ephesus, and he's going to tell us why he decided to stay there longer. You know what? I'm going to stay here some more. Watch. 16, 8. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why, Paul? For a great and effective door has opened to me. Let's stop right there. We love that part. It's like people are responding. People seem open. People seem interested. I tried to get a permit to set up a little shop here and do ministry, and I got it. The city gave it to me. Here's how we talk as Christians. Everything is working out. All the doors are opening. This must be of God, so I know I'm doing what he wants me to do. Great. But I want you to factor in the next part. And there are many adversaries what too often I, I hear Christians talk in a way that it sounds like their way of determining what they should be doing is there's no resistance there's no resistance look how God is just opening doors it's amazing I run a business and I want to run it to the glory of God and as I do that I just don't get any resistance it must be that God wants me to run my business to the glory of God and be different listen to me my friend You run your business to the glory of God. You start living for what matters most. You start being intentional about living for Jesus. Expect resistance. Expect problems. Expect troubles. Expect. And I would even say it to you this way. Some of you, the lack of resistance in your life indicates you're not moving in the right direction enough. When you really start Moving in a direction saying, I want to live for Jesus Christ. Good grief. Our enemy, Satan, is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time. He doesn't have unlimited resources like God. He has limited resources. He can only put people and go after certain people. And he says, her. She started serving at New Hope Center. Take her out. Him. He's leading a small group now. Rock his world with a rebellious child. Folks, mark my words. When you start to really try to make a difference, you will face opposition and trouble. But don't draw the conclusion, oh my goodness, I thought God wanted to start this ministry. I thought he wanted to do us. But things have been so hard and so difficult, it must not have been God's will. So often, if you're doing what you should be doing, living the way you should live, it'll be like the winds of adversity in your face. It'll be like swimming upstream. If you just want to build another big house, if you just want to see all the kids score well and get into all the right schools, if you just want to eat out five times a week, if you just want to go on great vacations, if you just want to build birdhouses and collect shells and play with the grandchildren, our enemy will leave you alone with your shells and birdhouses. 
But you say, I'm going to counsel somebody. I'm going to get equipped to work at New Hope Center. I'm going to serve at Fairhaven. I'm going to actually open my mouth and speak at work. I'm going to try to make a difference. I'm going to sacrifice my money to give sacrificially and invest in ministry. Buckle up. But you'll know I'm doing the right thing. I'm living the right way. Number three, characteristic of what it would look like to hold on the sovereignty of God and the rock of evangelism that we must speak. Number three, you'll be patient and willing to wait for God to do what only God can do. See, when you don't understand the sovereignty of God and you think it's all about your ministry on steroids and how I shared it and what I said and my car key illustration, I mean, maybe he didn't understand. Maybe I didn't say it just right. Like, duh, what are you not getting? That's how you act when you don't understand the sovereignty of God because it's all up to you. Folks, listen to me. You will never argue anyone into the kingdom of heaven. You can back them into a theological corner. You can kick the legs out from underneath all their logic and reason. And they'll still look at you and say, yeah, but. Don't hear me saying don't have good answers. Don't hear me saying don't have illustrations. Just recognize the heavy lifting is on God's ends. They have a heart of stone. Their eyes are blind. Their ears are deaf. They do not want God. It will take God to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ along with what you're doing. So you're patient. You wait. You sow a seed and you let God be the Lord of the harvest. Your reward, I hope this encourages some of you. I've seen, I've been a pastor 30 years now, 20 years here. I could count on one hand how many people I've seen pray and receive Christ right in front of me. Does that make you feel better? I don't have some holster with all these notches like, dang, I've led dozens of people to Christ. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you, I have shared the gospel and spoken of Christ and spoken a verse, written a verse, emailed a verse hundreds of times. Your reward will be based on not how many people you see come to Christ, but how, how well you live for Christ and speak for Christ. Sow the seed. You let him be the Lord of the harvest. He'll take care of the rest. Patient. Patient. I won't have his turn there because of time. But in 2 Timothy 4. That's the passage I put there. 1 to 5. You'll see seasoned veteran minister Paul talking to young Timothy. And in the midst of all he tells him about convince, rebuke, exhort. Preach the word in season, out of season. When it's popular, when it's not. Don't give up. Then tucked right in there he says, With all long suffering." Some translations say with complete patience. Don't get irritated with lost people. Don't, don't have that like, duh, what is wrong with you? Heaven, hell, you stupid? Like, oh, be patient. Let me tell you a story. This is past week. I was talking to someone new in our church and asked them, hey, tell me about how you came to faith in Christ. When you came to Christ. How, when did you become a Christian? Because they were excited. And the person was like my age. And I love to hear how, what God does. Sure enough, he says, I grew up Roman Catholic my whole life. In fact, my parents were very committed, very serious. I went to church six days a week through the eighth grade. But I did not know Jesus Christ as my Savior. Hear me. You can be up to your eyeballs in religion and inside a church building and still be on your way to hell. Lost. Going to church even six days a week doesn't make you a Christian. There's a difference between religion and and a relationship with Jesus Christ. He said, at 43 years old, my son got involved with Young Life. I love Young Life. 
because of what he's about to say, because I've seen it over and over right here in this church. Said, my son got involved in Young Life and started to attend a church like ours. But if Young Life people just pack it out over there, that come, who've heard about Jesus and the gospel at school. He started attending a church and I, he wanted me to go. I just went to make sure it wasn't a cult. So I just went to check it out. This is my son. Oh my goodness, what has he gotten into? He said, I heard a message like I'd never heard before and it struck a nerve with me. And so I continued to attend, all right? Keep that going. Then a coworker at work invited me to do a weekend that's called an Emmaus Walk. Some of you have done that. It's amazing, an experience of thinking through Jesus Christ. And two different things going on. Then someone else was starting a Bible study that I knew. And I said, hey, can I come to your Bible study? And he said, yeah, but I want to meet you for breakfast first. And he said, I went to breakfast with the guy and he opened the Bible and he went to Luke 14, 25 to 33 that talks about counting the cost of following Christ. This guy wanted to make it harder, not easier. And said, he walked through counting the cost, leaving everything else behind, really following Jesus, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, putting him first. He said, when he finished, he looked at me and said, now, you interested in that? And he said, I said, yes. And I put my trust in Christ. Now, here's why I tell you that. Most of us sitting in this room, if you're a Christian, your story is similar. It was not one thing that one person did at one particular time. And now you're a Christian. There was this. And there was this. And there was this. You never know, folks, when you speak to that person at the gym or in the grocery store, that they also might have a sister in Oregon that's been praying and fasting for 10 years that he would come to faith in Christ. When you begin a conversation with that woman in the doctor's office and you're both sitting there and it's silent and you strike it up, that she's got a next door neighbor that's already been talking to her about Jesus and invited her to Bible study. And there's also this and this. God is working in millions of ways that you can't see. You just get to be one little part. I love Piper's quote. John Piper says, God is working in 10,000 different ways in our lives at any given moment. And sometimes he allows us to see three of them. Don't base what you think is going on in your life or someone else's by what you can see. God's at work and we just get to be a part of it. Characteristic number four. When you hold on to the sovereignty of God and the big rock that God actually uses us, we have to speak. We share the gospel. Here's what will happen. You'll be committed to praying before, during, and after you share the gospel. Because you will recognize that Washington is not our biggest problem. That Washington no longer courts favor with the evangelical vote. Wow, 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 wow. How are we going to turn this world around? Please stop it. That people have been so entertained and buzzed on such a level that Hollywood has gotten so amazing. How can we compete? Our Easter musical looks so sad compared to theirs. Mm -hmm, It does. But that's not our worst problem, what we're up against. Not enough razzle-dazzle, not enough money, not enough clout in Washington. Let me show you what we're up against, and it's not new. This has always been the main problem. And so our solution needs to be what this passage tells us. Go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Let me show you what the real problem is. It's not Washington. It's not Hollywood. It's not any of that. It's not the Democrats or the Republicans or the independents. Folks, that's, that's child's play. That is little stuff. 
Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, there you go. Every single man or woman in Washington in a, in a position of power. Flesh and blood? Every single person in Hollywood wielding amazing power, creating worse and worse movies and all kinds of terrible stuff and the internet, blah, blah, blah. Flesh and blood? Absolutely. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Folks, get this. When you say, yes, Lord, I'll be intentional about trying to sacrifice and start conversations and live my life and speak real words to real people, you are stepping into the front lines of spiritual warfare. And so you better know what your weapons are, both, both defensively and offensively. For the sake of time, I'm not going to unpack that passage, but you can read it. The only offensive weapon you see in the passage, talk about the black breastplate of righteousness, the girdle of truth, Feet shod with the gospel of peace, helmet of salvation, shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of anyone, and taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But here's what I wish more Christians recognized. It's not just that I want you to know your Bible and speak God's word and talk about Jesus. If you don't get excited about what he says next, you still are in trouble. Comma, verse 18, praying Always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That's not just softball prayer. Does that sound like you just say, and and, and by the way, pray, throw up a prayer. God bless them all real good work today. Just bless them. (laughs) Praying with all supplication. Why do I get over here at 745 and pray till 930? Why do I take days of prayer and fasting? And it's not just pastors that should do this. If you want to live for what matters most in the gym, in the grocery store, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, you are going to have to wrestle in prayer and talk to God about people before you try to talk to people about God. Because I, I want you to notice something. Verse 18, wrestling in prayer, precedes verse 19 and 20, where twice he says that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, that I may speak boldly as I ought. Look at me. Until you make verse 18 a habit in your life of wrestling in prayer for people by name, you'll never begin to see verse 19 and 20 in your life speaking boldly. I want you to know God's word and I want you to start praying for people by name. By name. Watch what God might start to do. I put a place in the bulletin at the end there for you to actually think and pray and think, who do I know? Who's in my sphere of influence? Who at the dry cleaners? Who at the bank? Who at the store I, where I buy tires? Who, who, who? I try to frequent the same stores on purpose just so that I'll start to know some of the same people by name. And I pray. And I pray. You say, Brad, does anybody real do this? Besides you, pastors and missionaries. Oh my goodness, yes. And they're sitting around you. People in this church live this way, folks. They live this way. They're sitting all around you. Let me give you one example. And I have her permission. Young woman sent me an email about a year ago. And she is a teacher in the public school. That's a hard place to be a Christian. In the public school, she says this. 
I want to thank you for how you encourage us to be faithful right where we are. For the longest time, I wanted to be a missionary. She goes on to say, I wanted to be a missionary. and I thought I would just teach school long enough to pay off my school debts and then really live for Jesus and go to a foreign country and make a big difference. And she said, because of the way you talk, I decided to pray, God, would you give me the same kind of heart that I would have in another country for my students right here in America? And she said, oh, my goodness. God has so changed my heart that she said, now I, would, I don't even want to go anywhere else. And she said, a year ago, that very thought would have made me cringe that this is what I'm going to do. And she says, through God's word and your teaching, I have come to understand that God often calls us not to do big, huge, awe-inspiring things with our lives, but to live faithfully and intentionally right where God has planted you. And she says, I also want to thank you for your encouragement to pray faithfully. She said, because of that, I, I decided to choose a coworker to pray for by name. And she says, it turns out that he's a very difficult person. Didn't know that. She says, I prayed for three years without seeing anything. Like nothing is happening at all. And he knew I was a Christian, but we never talked. He never talked to me. And this woman, by the way, lest you say, oh, I'm sure she's effervescent and dynamic. She's the life of the party. Awkwardly shy. Go out to lunch. It's like, oh, man, that was hard. She doesn't talk. This is who, this is who wrote me this. She said, after three years, he asked me to pray for him. Then he gave me a book on New Age, so I gave him a book on Christ. And we read each other's books and we talked. And she said, then one day he came into my office after school hours and shut the door behind him and said, can I get you to pray for something? And he opened up about something very difficult, very hard, something the Bible disagrees with. And she said, we had an awkward, honest discussion about what the Bible says about that area of his life and what was going on. And she said a few days later, he was talking to me again and he stopped and he looked at me and said, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. And she said, I thought, I do. Because I've been praying. She, this is a long email. She went on to tell me about three or four students that were the worst students that made her life so miserable. One of he'd even posted on Facebook, it is my goal to make Mrs. So-and-so so miserable. I hate her. I know she's a Christian. And how God changed their hearts and had them open up to her and tell her terrible things that was going on in their lives. And she had chances to pray with them, talk about Jesus, share the gospel. And she closes saying this. There's so many other stories, little conversations and opportunities that God has given. And I'm tempted to discount all this because so often, she did say, teaching is sucking the life out of me. It is so stressful, so frustrating, so hard. All that is true. There's so many days that I just think, I can't do this. But I have to believe that God is working through prayer. And she says, every time I hear you say this now, I think, yes, he will. She said, I heard you say one Sunday, pray and say, God, give me eyes to see other people around me. She's like, oh, my goodness, Pastor Brad, he will, he will, he will. And then she said this, I am very shy. I already knew that, but... I am very shy and bold is about the last adjective anyone would ever use to describe me. But God will give us boldness if we pray and he will help us see other people around us. That's all I'm talking about. That's one young woman in the public school 
having that many opportunities because she prayed and said, give me eyes. What if every single person in this room, where you work, where you live, where you exercise, where you go to school, was to pray that? Give me eyes to see real, real people. And Lord, I'm scared, but I'll... Oh my goodness, the difference we could make. We don't need ministry on steroids. We don't need to take back over Washington. Folks, we need believers to come back to where the power is. God's word and prayer, knowing only God can save. So it's not on us. We get the joy of being his humble little spokespeople. And let God work. Let God work. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for direct access to your throne. And thank you for your heart that is committed to saving lost people. You want to more than we want to. And that your plan is to actually use weak, fearful, less than adequate. I don't know if I'll know everything to say the right things. To do amazing things in other people's lives. Oh God, make this a year that every single one of us would have opportunities to tell a story to someone else and say, oh my goodness, let me tell you what happened. Oh my goodness, let me tell you what happened. I was praying and, oh God, do it for your glory, for the good of lost people and for our joy. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.